This podcast was recorded live in London at the ICAD conference. I'm Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. All right, so imagine it's 1999 and you publish a book called Virtual Addiction and everybody thinks you're crazy. You've been at the virtual addiction uh, experience for now 20 years. Uh, Everybody's telling you, you said, quit your job, uh, uh, go get a job at McDonald's, stop talking about this stuff. Now it's the hot topic. Yes. And everybody is coming to listen to you. Dr. David Greenfield, um, we're here in London at the ICAD conference. However, you are not British. No, I'm not British. Where is your clinic? So our outpatient clinic is in um, West Hartford, Connecticut, one of the original colonies. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Great Britain. (laughs) So... You really did. You really were like the one of the leaders in this field of yeah. virtual addiction. Yeah, technology no, I guess I addiction. was. I, I was one of the first or second people in the world to really deal with the issue. What was what was it about technology and the virtual world that was giving you red flags out of the gate that made you start talking about this before anybody else was? Um, three things. One is I got a new computer back in the late 1990s, hooked to the internet to a dial-up modem that moved at 28.8. Uh, I don't even know what that is anymore. Okay, well, that's like one thousandth of the speed of today's internet. Okay. So it would take like three or or four minutes for a photo to scan up the screen. I remember that. Okay. Okay. So, but even with that, I felt myself compelled to look online and surf and try to find things for hours. And I said, there's something psychoactive about this medium. There's something that's drawing me in like a drug. What, what, what is it about your background that got you to be able to uh, self-identify, self-regulate, bring in some healthy coping mechanisms? Well, I have a lot of things. One is, is that when I was 14 or 15, I spent four and a half months in a drug rehab program okay. myself. Okay. So I kind of knew about addiction from a personal perspective. But uh, my background is in psychiatry. I have a, 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 a certified in addiction medicine. Okay. So my focus was on substance and alcohol-based addiction at that time. And technology addiction didn't really exist. It was a new, it was a brand new thing. And I saw a small study published by another doctor that compared heavy internet addicts to gambling addicts. So that kind of piqued my interest. And I was talking to another colleague and I decided to approach ABC News, and we did a study. I constructed a study, uh, hooked up with the medical school where I I teach, and at uh, University of Connecticut School of Medicine, and we did uh, 
surveyed about 18,000 people to look at their internet use back in 1998. And so this is before high-speed internet, before Wi-Fi, before laptops, before smartphones. Right. This is just early on. And we found about 5.9% of the people met criteria for addiction to their technology. And this is before it got easy, easy to carry and before it was fast. So all of those things together got me sort of compelled to move into this. But honestly, what catapulted me into the area of making this a specialty was that the media just grabbed it and basically demanded more time and knowledge and I had to just become an expert. When did the age of media addiction start to, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, translate down to the youth? I'm assuming that we It got really, 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 well, it's always been potentially there through video gaming, <laughs> but really when it started to, the, the peak, the tipping point was about 2010, 2012, when smartphones hit their saturation point. When it was more likely to have one than not have one. That what that did was that put a portable dopamine pump in everybody's pocket. Okay, so you, you talk about it being a portable dopamine pump, right. and that's one of the big things that we know. That information's getting passed around. Yes, it is. That it releases dopamine, generation like. Correct, Correct. generation like. Okay. And the anticipation of a potential desirable thing online or a like or whatever, anything you look at releases even more dopamine than the actual life. So is that is that also true with drugs, alcohol, gambling, that the anticipation yes. of the use? Right, that's what a trigger is. A trigger uh -huh. for use is that anticipatory dopamine hit that triggers the hippocampus to remember what it's like to do it, sends a signal to the nucleus of Cummins which secretes dopamine, and then you're off to the races. That's what addiction is. Right. It's an activation of those reward circuits in the brain. Okay, now let's go to the flip side of it. I had a parent ask me at a, at a, uh, a small event I was doing, um, you know, uh, when talking about media addiction, said, how do I know when it's a problem? I said, yeah. well, what happens when you take it away? Oh, they throw a fit, he punched a hole <laughs> in the wall, uh, he was screaming at me, called me names, and I said, if he was doing that for pills, would you be worried? And she said, oh, yeah. Like then worry. Yeah. So, how, so that's withdrawal. Yeah. Let's look at withdrawal symptoms yeah. now. What are you seeing? So, just like any addiction, <laughs> you see symptoms of uh, just like with any addiction, you see symptoms of tolerance, meaning you need more of it or more frequent use. You need uh, you get symptoms of uh, withdrawal, meaning that when you take it away, you experience some anxiety or discomfort or feelings of ill at ease or a tantrum or anger uh, and you use it on a regular basis <laughs> to modify uh, your behavior and your mood. So it, it's a digital drug. Your brain doesn't know the difference between the intoxicating substance or behavior. <laughs> Take your time. I know what that's like. I've had it. <coughs> Sounds like me, doesn't it? <coughs> Please continue. <laughs> Please continue. The coughing fit took me. That's okay. So what I was saying is your brain doesn't know the difference between a digital drug and a real-time drug. Once you activate those reward pathways in the brain, it doesn't care whether it's cocaine, the internet, a video game, alcohol, gambling, it's irrelevant. 
This is where we get into the argument about whether something's addictive or not. And because I work primarily with teens, uh, that you know comes up a lot with marijuana, yeah. with with uh, the internet, with porn. Right. And that's where it starts I can talk to. About that, yeah. yeah, and that's where it starts to change from the substance itself to the person itself. Well, it's the behavioral pattern is the addiction. Nice. The the, the behavioral okay. pattern of use and abuse, and compulsive use is the pattern. The the physiological dependence to the substance is generally for marijuana controversial, but for like for opiates, for alcohol, is real. There is a physiological dependence, but that dies very quickly after detox. But people still relapse. What they're relapsing, the relapse is the addiction. It are the triggers and urges and cravings that are happening neurologically and psychologically okay. that trigger the addiction cascade. Addiction is a complex phenomena of all of these behaviors and neurobiological triggers. It's not the actual connection to the substance. You don't need a substance. You need activation of those reward pathways in the brain. So marijuana does do that. Yes. And so we do know that people become psychologically dependent or addicted to it. It's true that they don't develop physiological withdrawal from marijuana, but they do have psychological withdrawal. Well, and the same type of stuff can be said with, uh, um, with cutting, with self-harm. We know that razor blades in and of themselves are not addictive. No. However, that entire process. Especially for you. Yeah, exactly, the whole head. <laughs> uh, but the entire process of, of you know, having an emotional trigger, um, feeling like you're going to obtain relief from yes. harming yourself, um, finding the item itself, securing it, finding a place to do it, doing it, feeling the relief, and then, of course, the flip side right. of the symptoms. That is the pattern. So the pattern is what the addiction is. It's a repetitive pattern. Okay, so now the danger is, seems to be, could be, um, might be, and this is where you guys with a lot of letters after your name come in to convince the families, or before, uh, <laughs> to convince the parents and the, and the teachers and the clinicians and the school districts putting a iPad, putting a phone, setting your kid in front of the TV, in the computer, it's not a good idea. No, it's not a good idea. It never was. But, you know, to, to, to defend most parents, we didn't really know that much about it. We now know unequivocally that screen use is addictive and that it should be doled out in small doses and managed very, very carefully, especially in younger children and in teenagers. Can, can you give some ages Yeah, and zero times. to two, yeah. not at all. You should not hand your six-month-old a smartphone or a tablet to keep him or her busy. Uh, people do it all the time. Not recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, by the American Society of Adolescent and Child Psychiatry, by APA, and we certainly don't recommend it. Under two, not at all. Two to six, <laughs> sparingly. An hour or less a day, preferably less. Uh, from 6 to 13, up to an hour, hour and a half approximately. After 13 or 14, two hours a day. Our general recommendation is two hours a day of media use for everybody. Now, the average American, irregardless of age, six to seven hours. Good Lord. What do you, how, what do, you do with that? That's like... It it's a full-time job. It is literally of, like opening a medicine cabinet for your kids and yeah. saying... 
take what you want. Right, and the big thing about it is that not only does it change your brain chemistry, but it increases social alienation and social dis dis connection, increases depression and anxiety, but more importantly, it eats so much time that they have an imbalance in the rest of their lives. So let's talk about the connection piece. I have a theory that because Generation X, we've been inventing these things. We're the ones who have, who have brought in the addictive traits of them. We yeah. market them, we sell them, we buy them, and our kids use them. I feel like Gen X, we have bought these huge houses with tall fences right next to our neighbors who we don't know. Right. And our kids have found the hole in the fence. We get our kids, we take our kids to any school in the district we want, might be 30 miles away from school and a half hour away from their friends, and this is how they stay in contact. Have children just found the hole in the fence? Yeah, I think, I think children have found the hole in the fence. The problem <laughs> is there's nothing on the other side of the hole. There, there's really nothing there. So it's not real connection? No, it is not. What's the difference in the brain between online and face-to-face -face connection? There's a huge difference. Now, I'm not saying that children that text and Snapchat and message through Facebook and Instagram are have a problem necessarily because that is their dominant form of connection. That is their dominant form. It, their, their form of connection is textographic. You can't take that away from them any more than you could take away our <laughs> phones when I was growing up that we had extensions in our room. That I was, remember that was dragging like the big, phone cord up the stairs. Exactly. That was a big deal. So. I, I think there's a difference between using the technology to connect and communicate and the excessive use of gaming, social media, um, surfing, and all the other activities that eat so much time. However, if you think that social media is equivalent to real-time connection, it's not. It's non-nutritive. It doesn't allow people to develop those verbal skills and the human connection that requires face-to-face -face or verbal interaction. And the data is pretty clear that kids feel more socially alienated, more disconnected, and levels of depression are higher now than they were 10 years ago. Adolescent suicide rates are higher than they were. Interestingly, <coughs> substance abuse rates have dropped among the adolescent population. And we think, and, and uh, NIH and um, NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, think that it's related to smartphones, that they're drugging themselves so much with their devices that they don't need, that they don't need the substances as much. That's a terrible problem to right. have. That's what we think is going on. We don't know that for sure, but it appears that something like that is happening. Because I don't think that the desire to self-medicate has gone away. Okay, so now parents listening, they got a 13, 14 year old, they're listening to your wisdom, they're going, all right, I, I need to backpedal on this. Yeah, so it's very hard for parents to monitor their kids and everything they do. One of the things we recommend is an, the use of apps like Circle or Custodio. I just heard about Circle, Circle. recently. Yeah, so I'm actually, I, I have a, and a partnership with Circle that I'm going to be promoting their product a little bit because it's such a good product. I'll be talking about it more. But Circle is very good, very user friendly, and it's something that people can use as a way to monitor, modulate, limit, and give total dosing of how much they have. I mean, the thing is, if you have an alcohol problem and you come home and there's alcohol in the fridge, you're more likely to relapse. So if you have access to everything unfettered all the time, 24-7, you're going to use it. So these devices, these, these blocks help limit and dose it a little bit. The kids are not going to like it, but your, part of your job as a parent is to set appropriate limits, boundaries, 
and rules. So the yeah. beauty of that is you don't have to be sitting there and watching your kid. Watching everything. Because then it becomes a personal conflict between you and the kid. And kids can become violent and throw those tantrums that you were talking Because about. they're going through withdrawal. Because they are going through withdrawal. Okay. Dopamine uh, withdrawal. Dopamine withdrawal. Okay, so now parents, they, they feel that it's a good idea to backpedal. They do what you say. And they should say, you know, we made a mistake. Now, importantly, if the parents good. are going to do this, yeah. they have to model what they're preaching. Okay, huge, huge, huge. Because the worst, watched a, watched a dad holler at his son at a restaurant. It's one of my podcasts called The Dad in the Restaurant. And he yelled at his son over and over, repetitive argument cycle, over and over and over. Drop your phone, put your phone away. Kid drops a phone, stares at his lap, phone comes back up, drop your phone. And it goes on and on and on, only at the end of dinner for dad to pull up his phone and completely disconnect from the table. Yeah. So Not a good idea. No, so now we've got a parent who is modeling healthy patterns, like you said, most right. important. They've, they've put in circle, they've admitted to the kid that they've made a mistake. Whole family is starting to you know, pull back on their use. And school sends home an iPad and all the homework has issue. to be done Big online. issue because those iPads and those school-based computers, you can't put blocks and filters on them. They're, they're owned by the school. Right. And so you're not allowed to hack into them. But kids can hack through any firewall the school puts up. They, they can. They can try, yeah. Oh, I've, I've seen it. Yeah. I, I work yeah. with the kids who have. They can. And, um, but more importantly, they can get to stuff. Like, they can get to YouTube on those computers. Right. And if you have a gamer that can't game, He's going to watch people game on YouTube. You know, I heard of I heard a funny story in the internet where an uncle was uh, uh, berating his seven-year-old nephew, saying, "You know, look at you watching other people play games on the internet. Like they're not even playing the game; they're talking about other people playing." Brain doesn't the game. know the difference. Yeah, I, yeah, but the but he said, "Why do you watch other people play games?" He goes, "I don't know. Why do you watch football?" <laughs> and I, that's right. Well, a actually, good it is very similar. You're you're vicariously experiencing it. The difference between gaming and football is, I dare say I've never treated anybody for a football addiction, although maybe I should have. But for the most part, you know, I'll see people gaming. We have a, a guy that I just talked to this week before I came to London who was spending 12, 14 hours a day gaming. Yeah. And his life is a shambles. I don't have too many people that are watching football 12 hours a day. Sure. So. Now, now you're you're talking about when you you brought up a second ago about how the brain doesn't know the difference. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, right, right his and yeah. his work in the military, yeah. um, talking about measuring brainwaves of soldiers in active fire combat, live firefights versus on video games. versus on a video game, and the exact same parts of the brain are stimulated. Right. So that's why the U.S. Army they actually were at the forefront of first-person shooter games. They created some of the first first-person shooter sure. games. And they became so popular, the websites were so popular, that that promulgated the use of uh, some of the very popular first-person shooter games that are out there now. Now, and what they were finding is soldiers coming out of live fire feats off the field and uh, uh, relaxing playing these video games had much higher PTSD rates. Correct, that's right, because they're activating the, the, the trauma. They're activating, they're reactivating the trigger response. It does desensitize you, but it also sensitizes Sensitizes you. It activates the, the amygdala, that fear response. Of the whole exposure, these, these, these children have the library of Alexandria in their laps. Yeah. The sum total of human knowledge and creation. Yeah. 
What is the most dangerous part of all of this? Is it the quantity? Is it the quality? I, I is it the content or it, the context? It's everything. It's the medium. The internet medium is the hypodermic. The content is the drug. And it, there's a synergistic amplification when you combine the variable reinforcement of the internet medium with stimulating content like gaming or porn or other things that are online. So it's that combination. The internet is the world's largest slot machine. It delivers information in a variable format. The smartphone is the smallest slot machine. But when you take that slot machine medium, the internet, right. and then put stimulating content, whether it be a game or social media or shopping or anything that has a stimulatory dopaminergic power to it, you're combining, it's pouring gasoline on a fire. Okay. We're, we're wrapping down to the end here. I want to make sure parents have access to your books, your website, sure. you directly. What what information, how do people contact you and find so, you? So my name is Dr. David Greenfield. I'm the medical director and founder of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction. <laughs> and your, our website is www.virtual-addiction.com. And my email is drdave at virtual-addiction.com. Do you also have a podcast, a radio show, anything I don't like have that? a podcast. Okay. No, I should. You should. <laughs> and and what, are, what about videos online? Yeah, there's, talks? if they go to our website, there's, there's a YouTube channel. Right. There's Twitter feeds. There's Facebook. There's a lot of information. There's videos on our website and on our YouTube channel as okay. well. There's a lot of information for parents about Doctor, I'd like to do a longer show with you once we're both back in the yeah, States. Yeah, sure. Okay. I'll, uh, my people will call your people. Okay. Dr. This Greenfield. This is one of my people. Dr. Greenfield, thank you so much thank for being you. on Beyond Risk and Back. Parents, you know Here's, the mantra. I have, I have one already. Okay, perfect. Uh, parents, you know the mantra. Take care of yourselves first. Take care of your adult relationship this second. One? Take care of your... Uh, children third because in that way we do our best work with our children. I want to thank Kristen Walker and Mental Health News Radio Network for all their love and support.